0: Okay, we understand there is the law, and we have to act in accordance with it, but there's also a human here who has some needs. Uh, Those sets of laws and policies helping me help this person with their needs, and sometimes they don't.
1: Welcome to the Stay Free Forever Podcast, Episode 5. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you adapt and thrive. This podcast is intended for people, adults and younger, who are ready to move on with life towards something they can be proud of. It doesn't matter how bad things got before, because what's important is today and tomorrow. Once the decision to change has been made, the all-important question becomes quite simple. How? My guest today is well-positioned to answer that question. I know this to be true because, seven years ago, Trevor Lloyd helped me to move on in life towards something I could be proud of. Not that I wasn't proud of being a parole officer, I was. But I really wanted to do more coaching and mentoring than the job allowed. When I discovered that my parole officer toolbox included a whole series of offense-specific cognitive behavioral courses that I could assign think DUI, theft shoplifting, anger management, and more from a company called the American Community Corrections Institute, I had to know more. Soon I found myself on the phone with the company's president and CEO, the man who is with us today to share his journey of how he got into the business of shaping better futures one course at a time. Trevor Joseph Lloyd was born in 1974 in San Jose, California to Nora and Larry Lloyd, who at the time were just starting the company that Trevor leads today. Their very first course, Driver Responsibility, took a whole new approach, focusing on the driver's own values, attitudes, and beliefs, and how these affected the driver and everybody else every time he or she got behind the wheel of a 3,000-pound high-speed machine. Trevor, his folks, and his five siblings enjoyed a stable family life where Trevor got to do a lot of what he loved most, skateboarding and playing basketball. Like many boys, he hoped his skills might lead to a career in the NBA. In preparing for our chat today, Trevor told me his interests as a young man were people, sports, food, and trucks and Jeeps in that order. The family moved to Austin, Texas, where Trevor attended grade school, high school, and community college. He then earned his bachelor's in psychology from the Brigham Young University campus in Hawaii and took his master's in industrial and organizational psychology from Alliant International University in San Diego. Trevor and his wife and business partner, Angie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, are raising three children in Provo, Utah, where he joins us today from his office at ACCI headquarters. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Trevor Lloyd. Thank you, Clifford.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: It's an honor and a real privilege because, like I said, you got me going into this business of mine seven years ago. And it's taught me a lot. And you have taught me a lot. So thanks for being here. Absolutely. When I asked you who you looked up to as a kid, you mentioned your dad and four professional athletes. (laughs) From the NBA, Dan Marley, Charles Barkley, and Grant Hill. And from the NFL, Dwayne Wright. Why these guys?
0: That's a great question. The round mound of rebound. (laughs) The Chuckster, Charles. He kind of broke some molds with his size. And just his endearing personality and, and just his work ethic and his love for the game. He was hard to guard. He was a little bit of uh, he was a little feisty, he was a little feisty. I, I appreciated the feistiness, but uh, I always saw in him a level of respect as well. A lot of gamesmanship. But uh, he had to play around like the Hakeem Elijah Wands, like massive guys. And he was six six and quote unquote, overweight, etc. But man, he still was just powerful. That's pretty cool. He just didn't fit the mold of uh, at the time, you know, a little bit of a trendsetter. I liked him Thunder Dan Martin, Dan Marley, because I always thought, man, if there was ever a shot, <laughs> ever the faintest shot. Uh, and I could nowhere be as strong as he did. I, I, I would say, hey, maybe I would be able to play like that guy. And who else did I mention? Danny Ainge? Well, you didn't mention Danny Ainge. Oh, okay. um,
1: you mentioned um, a football
0: player, Dwayne Wright. Now, correction there, Dwayne is, was actually a neighbor of mine in Austin, Texas. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely not, not NFL, but a superhero, a naval pilot. He was in the Navy and, and flew in the Navy, was shot down behind enemy lines twice in two different international conflicts, World War II and, and Korean. Survived being a prisoner of war twice. My appreciation for him has grown And he's still with us, and he's marching on well into his 80s. Still lives there in Austin. I was back there on a trip just early this year and absolutely stopped by, took pictures. And he was one of my youth mentors, somebody who just went out of their way, completely out of their way to demonstrate, I see something in you. Give me an example of something that Dwayne did for you. He would come down, knock on the door, and ask for me, as if he was one of my friends and was an adult. And I thought that was kind of strange, like, did I do something? And he's like, hey, come down. I want to show you something. He was always tinkering in his garage. He liked to fix things. I think on one occasion, he was showing me how he was fixing a bike. And just, it was crazy. I found myself hanging out with another person that's nowhere near my age. Looking back on it, it's like, dang, he made that kind of of cool, kind of fun. Uh, Well, you
1: mentioned in your bio that one of the things you were good at as a kid was speaking with adults. You don't hear many kids mentioning that as a skill, speaking with adults. Talk about that.
0: I don't know, nature versus nurture. Story goes, there's a three-year-old Trevor in the checkout line at the local grocery store with my mother and um, striking a conversation with the cashier and the cashier's peering down, looking at me, looking at my mom, like, do I respond? (laughs) And and my mom is shrugging her shoulders like, I I think so. I mean, he's, he's asking you a question. So it was things like that that just, I guess, started at a very young age. I just never had any fear or apprehension Around having a conversation with anybody that was quite older than me.
1: That's a skill. That's a what's a wonderful gift to carry through life. What's the biggest trouble that you ever
0: got into? Golly, um, senior skip day, late Travis, which was not sanctioned by the school. It was like fabricated by the seniors, self-declared senior skip day. Okay, we're skipping school. You know, it was late May, about this time of year. Those last few days, where it's like not much is happening. At the lake, I had some coinage on me back in the day when uh, you could walk up to a soda machine and put a quarter in and retrieve a drink. Uh, The soda machine took my quarter. And so uh, me and a couple of friends were looking at this machine and we tilted it. You could hear it inside and it didn't quite drop down. There was nobody at the lake. Anyways, the bubble gum machines start showing up. We're like, dude, why are there three cops? And then they turn, they turn down the other way towards us. And there was no alcohol, no drugs, none of that. Fortunately, and cops come out all a rage. Brrr, doors open, hands where I can see them. <laughs> and uh, once the dust kind of settles, they're like, "Well, we got a report that one of you is damaging property." And I'm like, uh, "That doesn't sound like us." And they're like, uh, "Who here is messing around with the coke machine?" <laughs> my echo. <head goes> <laughs> it 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 took my drink. Can I get my drink? You know, being a little bit of a smart aleck. That got me in a lot of trouble that day, to the point where, uh, and, and you'll appreciate this, Cliff, where I I, I got I uh, I got escorted uh, downtown uh, as a minor, and I'm in this room. They didn't handcuff me. There I am in in a downtown like a holding room or something. What I could hear through the door, a lady at the at the kind of the the secretary of the table said, "Well, hi, Mr. Lloyd. I didn't know that we were expecting you today." <laughs> And <laughs> you could imagine the kind of the feeling that went into my stomach at that moment. Like, oh, man, dad's here. And my dad was known for running these cognitive restructuring CBT programs. She thought maybe he was there to see one of the program managers, directors, whatever. And sheepishly, he's like, uh, no, that individual that you have over there is, is, is my son. <laughs> That was a long, car ride home. But dad, it stole my Sprite. (laughs) Was Larry cool? Embarrassed. He was never like that. No, I mean, that hurt me more than it hurt him, putting everything together. So there's more stories than you have time to give you some perspective. This is a subject that I wanted to go into
1: anyway. Larry writes about his life, not only in the introduction to the company on your web page, But also, some of the course stories are based on Larry's very harrowing ordeal as a young child. He did not grow up in a functional home. Am I right?
0: Yeah, you're right. And it's interesting when getting with his sisters, different children growing up in the same house sometimes have slightly different experiences. Yes, there was the alcoholism. Yes, there was some moments of abuse. What I gather from that is I think my dad, the oldest boy, had it a little bit harder. And then just looking at how sensitive he is as an individual, maybe some of that stuff stuck to him. He had a brother who was much, much younger, who really wasn't around for some of the harder times. So for whatever reason, I think his experience with that hit harder. He was very fortunate to find a way out of that. As you know, Cliff, in the material, we talk a lot about the cycles, generational, specifically that part in the material that he talks about being a blocker. And I think for a lot of justice-involved people, that says your endings don't have to equal your beginnings. I mean, if there's one big motto, it would be that. And he certainly did that for us kids, is he found a way to block that out and not pass that on and set us up for for massive success. So, yeah, it's with a lot of humility and gratitude that I'm standing on his shoulders, even though he's passed on.
1: Did you always know that you were going to take over ACCI?
0: Oh, heck no. No, 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 no. (laughs) Not at all. I was doing my own thing. After graduate school, we worked at a wilderness survival program, and so I was, I was really loving that. My wife and I are not blessed to have children naturally. We ended up having an opportunity to go further into the South Pacific to a place called the Kingdom of Tonga, down past Fiji and on your way to New Zealand. And we ended up running a, a residential treatment program for at-risk adolescent boys, and as a result, we ended up adopting. So all three of my kids are native to the Kingdom of Tonga. But you know we were off doing our own thing and, and kind of moving in our own direction having our own experiences and around 2008 I believe I had a conversation with Dad I was I, mean, I was best friends with Larry we talked all the time you know he invited me to come back and actually be active in ACCI and I was like mm-hmm, okay you know the attitude was yeah I've got a masters in you know IO psychology I'm going to come fix dad's business looking back is that this whole thing just grabbed me. I thought I was going to come and play more of a kind of a consultant role and, and then keep kind of pursuing some, some other, you know, career goals. But when you just look at the room for improvement on recidivism rates in this nation, and then what we do with schools and, and school to prison pipeline, I mean, it just, it just grabbed me, you know, and and here I am. So no, I, I, I did not, I did not anticipate that at all. And I enjoy it. I'm just uh, super blessed to be an opportunity to, to create and try to, try to have impact in an area where, where a lot of impact is needed.
1: <laughs> How do you think students have changed or the student experience has changed?
0: That's a really good question, Clifford. I love the question. You've got just as involved adults that were born in 2001, 2002. If you look at just my 48 years on the planet, there has been just massive changes in so many facets of life. And so it reminds me of the book by Spencer Johnson, Who Moved My Cheese? I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. You expect everything to be in the same place and all of a sudden that happens in life, that happens in business. I could say specifically back in the, in the 80s and even the 90s, it was all groups. That's just what you did. There was no other way. There was no other even thought of any other way one way that has become different is that in the criminal justice world there's something called RNR and it's an acronym that stands for risk need and responsivity what we're saying with the last R responsivity is that one size doesn't fit all that there's cultural considerations you know what are the best ways to meet this person's needs you're looking at a risk factor i like to use the medical analogy for heart disease if you go to the doctor they're going to say based on these factors Sir, you're at a very high risk for heart disease. That's the same thing with the likelihood to commit crime is what are the factors that relate, that correlate with the likelihood to commit crime? And so we, we look at those risk factors. Those are important. We assess those. And there's a lot of good instruments out there that that help assess the what those factors are for each individual because they're different for every individual. And then what I love about r is that next it looks at the need that it just doesn't stop at the risk. It looks like, okay, what's the need associated with that risk factor? What's the need behind that? And the assumption there is that something's missing. <laughs> that risk factor isn't normal. What society is saying essentially, it's kind of interesting is like, those risk factors that you have shouldn't be there. And here are the needs that are missing. And if we address these needs that are associated with those risk factors, those risk factors will come down. And then, of course, last, lastly, responsivity is, can we be responsive? And I love that because it's humanitarian. As you know, I'm really big in, into, into you know seeing people as people and the whole humanitarian approach. That's a big part of what we do with the material and our training, trying to surface data that helps correctional professionals see needs. You see the risk factor, but see the need and hopefully be equipped to, to do something about it to address it. I see it in a humanitarian lens that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this individual and, and saying they are an individual to me. I see them as an individual and I can't just run my agenda, run this big policy. Okay. So I know that my probation department you know, has this big policy and I have to be aware of that, but I also have another person who has a unique set of factors and I need to take into consideration their factors as opposed to, I don't want to say being a robot, but just like And in schools, uh, Cliff, it's big. I'm telling you, school administrators are just like, here's the district policy for marijuana on campus. So we're just going to use this policy and execute it. And, 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 you know, me with what we've learned in the field of probation and parole is like, can we look at like what their risk factors and find out what some needs are and like what's driving the behavior and, and, and have some intervention as opposed to saying, here's the policy and that responsivity piece basically is one size doesn't fit all. Man, there's such a diverse group of justice evolved individuals that it's so hard for our system to be that responsive because you've got big departments that can't move on a dime and be that nimble to to see specific needs. So there's a very sharp increase of inpatients, text, email, phone calls. We're reviewing hundreds and thousands of courses through this office that as far as that patience and student experience is that we operate a very large correspondence program for incarcerated individuals. And through COVID, that just went through the roof because all the other groups' programs got pulled. It was like everybody that was incarcerated was in solitary confinement, if you could imagine. They let out a bunch of people that they normally wouldn't have to shrink their numbers for social distancing. Those who were unfortunate to be left behind had really no contact. I mean, for me, that would be hell. And so, man, people were just connecting through the material, holding on to hope. I will say the incarcerated population, because of their circumstances, I assume, are a lot more thoughtful, a lot more grateful, a lot more patient with the cognitive behavioral change process. Whereas folks that are coming through courts, coming through probation, it's it's you know, speeding Gonzalez time, gas pedal. And, you know, we're trying to get them to slow down and see the connection between your subconscious programming and the current results you are getting in your life. And just doing that seems like hard work. Can we slow down just for a second while you're living on the planet? And for some people, it's like, no, I, I, I can't slow down and, and even have that consideration. And so it's getting a little more challenging because I think of the world that's moving in this hyper impatience.
1: I'm thinking about the article you wrote about how effective is cognitive behavioral training. And you point out in the article that the research has shown that when one is dealing with one's peers, you get one set of results. And when one is dealing with a pro-social mentor or coach, the results improve. Why do you
0: think that is? I think that groups work best in places where the individuals are domiciling together meaning they're incarcerated together, they're in a halfway house together, then a residential treatment setting together, because they can bring those relationships into the group. Otherwise, if you bring random individuals out of the community into a group, you're going to have to spend a session, two sessions, I don't know, it depends on the group, really doing some group building, making sure people feel like it's a safe place. Because let's be honest, the whole idea here is that we need people to process. And to do that in the face of peers is, is like, do I feel like really sharing with a person? Are they going to turn around and use that against me later? I mean, how honest and vulnerable will I be in a group setting? And those group dynamics are, are always at play. Facilitators play a massive role in that. But so, too, do the group participants. You get a couple of folks in there that start posturing and making comments, that it's sending shockwaves. The group's like going to clam up and be like, man, I... I just, I don't like this person or I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. And it really starts to erode that opening up process where we can really get people to share and open and have the group take a much larger role. I mean, that's what group facilitation is. Unfortunately, a lot, as you talk to folks is even the stuff that even our own, we still do groups, by the way, and and we're fighting the same battles. Everybody else is in this space is like, you cannot teach this material. And now that we're in schools and it's teachers, I have to tell them, like, I know you're a teacher and it's a school, but you you can't teach this curriculum. This has got to be facilitated. It's more of a therapeutic than it is an instructional. I just think that when you're working with a pro-social mentor, and I'll say this, the the research for juveniles is one of the most predictive factors is how many, if any, positive pro-social caregivers does a juvenile have? If you go out and look at juveniles that are at risk, let's go also and find out, do they have any adult caregivers that have any genuine care for them? The more that kids have uh, genuine support from adult caregivers and that role model and that connection, even though some of them might be making bad choices, I made some bad choices. I had people who invested in me in my success who saw something that I might not even saw at the time and and I look at just as involved youth that don't have maybe any. I mean, what are we hoping to have happen if we don't have adult caregivers who take an active interest in a person's life? so that dynamic of somebody taking an active interest in your life really opens the ability for the material and the concepts to be much more genuine much more authentic much more personal much more relatable again that's not to say that groups can't be powerful there's loads of research that support groups and that's been done for a long time i will say that folks who are in far out places maybe like wyoming I know providers are less likely to go do a theft shoplifting class if there's two people in the class. And now you've got people waiting to commit the same crime to you know, even hold intervention. So now some people aren't getting services for months on end. That's still not a good answer, in my opinion. So anyways, yeah, there's several reasons why I think a self-directed approach is another tool in a tool bag. Just to set the record straight there, that doesn't mean that groups can't be done really well, because they can't. They absolutely sure. can't.
1: I get the question sometimes. Do I have to be referred by a judge or a parole officer, or can I just take the course because I want to take the course? Do you get those questions?
0: Where we have gotten that the most, to be honest with you, is through the correspondence piece with incarcerated people. Because in that space, it's somebody outside the facility, a a friend or family member, most often, they're hungry too. This person is going to be released, you know, hopefully in the next six to 12 months. You hear that a lot. Or they're going to be doing the substance abuse course. I want to do it with them so that when we meet, we have more to talk about. That's happened over and over in that space. We're going to be doing more for these reentry coaches. Because if you could just imagine for a second what it's like that you've had, let's say, Johnny's been incarcerated for two years. I don't know, 18 months, three years, whatever. And that first night home, back to wherever they're going, are they going to do drugs? Are they going to fight? Are they going to revert to small behavior? What does the relationship look like? I mean, maybe it's the guy's coming out wants to go back to a former relationship. Maybe the the other partner in the relationship moved on with another person and that relationship is not there anymore. I mean, there's a lot going on there that needs to work to help that person avoid falling back into old behaviors and returning to that revolving door. We can do more to help people because people want to be helped. Cliff, people want to be helped. I say some people that we work with are resource resistant. I think they're like porcupines is my analogy. They've got their burrs out and you're just trying to like say hello, and they're just totally resistant. But even underneath that, people appreciate when somebody's actually genuinely helping them. And and I'll just leave it with with this. I would say that if you look at the history of our world, of our country, sorry, of, of America, the criminal justice system was never designed in its origins to be a solution for criminal behavior. It never was. It was a system of punitive measures. That's how it was founded in our country, and people don't recognize that. Now, with the advent of evidence-based practices and things like r we have come a long way towards being the solution. But we're still hanging on to things, and we still have lessons to learn as a society. It's like, okay, we understand there is the law, and we have to act in accordance with it, but there's also a human here who has some needs. Uh, those sets of laws and policies helping me Help this person with their needs and sometimes they don't and that's i know i'm getting into some big topics here but sometimes uh you know people are inside of these ecosystems and they don't realize that whether they're academic institutions or correctional institutions that they're inside of these systems that are not helping them see the individual as a person and recognize what their individual needs are and i'm really really passionate about that that's where i'm at today with accis how can i help leadership in corrections, adapt policy and procedures, culture and climate, training, professional development, to really be focused on individuals' needs.
1: Wow. That's why I joined your team.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
1: As you know, part two of the Stay Free Forever podcast involves me sharing some writings from a workbook or an online course with you and getting your feedback on it. Fair enough? Fair enough. Well, a substance abuse workbook completed by a 31-year-old Native American male not that long ago. One of the final questions in the workbook, what is the next biggest goal that you are working on and what are your biggest obstacles in achieving that goal? My next biggest goal is to get important documentation for my children. So they enter the first years of education. My biggest obstacle is that I need my children's mother involved to complete this, and she makes it difficult because the blame doesn't fall on her. She puts it on everyone else. What I learned in that course is that there is always a problem to every solution. So there is another way to go about getting the documentation, the right and good way. Interesting. I don't know whether they meant to say in the other order, there's a solution for every problem or a problem for every solution, but I read it the way he wrote it. What did you hear in that?
0: Well, Clifford, thanks for having me on your podcast. I could do this all day. (laughs) 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 It's a little bit emotional for me. And I'll say first that the first thing I hear is that those are his responses. There's no way you or I or anybody could say that that would be his takeaway. And at the very core of this for me is that we can't tell a judge, a lawyer, a prosecutor, a probation officer, what is it that people learn? And again, my point is, how do you predict that? You can't. What the material is doing is giving them a way to see differently, hopefully, through the vignettes, hopefully getting them to a space to just settle down and say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of banging my head against this situation. But, ah, oh, there is a there is a different way. <laughs> there is a different way. but." That's nothing that anybody told that gentleman. Nobody told him that that was a solution. And I would just say that when people own their own solutions, and it's even in the substance abuse course, that that comment had nothing to do with drug use. He came out of it
1: at the other end. I'm going to solve this problem. Even though I have this obstacle, I'm going to find a way that's appropriate and good to do this.
0: And I just want to say, I know you do this, as you know, in our world, admin users, or whoever that person's probation officer is, you know, with the way we've designed the technology to, to be able to see those. And hopefully, and it's a big hope, validate them for that. So if I had the chance, if I was a probation officer, that was a really good insight. How can I help you reach that goal? What are some specifics? And sometimes probation officers might not think that that's my job, but man, the rapport that you build and now you're setting them in a, in a pro-social, they're, they're working on something that's, that's affecting their children. You know, we got to take advantage of what's right in front of us. Like they just offered... You know they just shared something massive and a lot of times we just like eh, okay yeah okay you can certificate you complete <laughs> like, great you know next please but like wow can we do something with that
1: As you know, part three of the Stay Free Forever podcast invites each of us to share a quote or a passage that we have read or has made an impact on us and discuss it briefly. Who would you like to go first? You, please. All righty. Since you're an organizational development guy, there's a book, People in Charge, that my friend Bob Ream wrote 15, 20 years ago. It's about team building. Bob maintains that there are six criteria for productive work. So for someone to enjoy their job, there's six things that people need. Elbow room for decision-making, opportunity to learn on the job and go on learning, variety, mutual support and respect, meaningfulness, and a desirable future. Nowhere does it mention money, which I love, but I focus on meaningfulness. People need to relate to what they do and what they produce to their social life. Meaningfulness includes both the worth and quality of a product and having a knowledge of the whole product. Many jobs lack meaning because workers see only such a small part of the final product that its meaning is denied them. Meaningfulness has two dimensions, socially useful and seeing the whole product. Taken together, these dimensions make it possible for a person to see a real connection between their daily work and the world. Is that your job? Do you see that?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You have to have joy in what you do. Some people don't agree with that. Some people don't necessarily think it's important to have joy. What's the meaning of your job in relation to the world? What's the meaning of my job? That's a big question. Man, if I had to define meaning for my job, the first thing that would come to mind for me would be loving the people that I work with. And that's probably not something you would maybe hear often, I don't know, but just really, really loving people up especially the people that are on your closest team, you know, that's random act of kindness. That's, that's, uh, you know, giving people space. Um, That's having good, good, healthy professional boundaries and having fun, even though some days, you know, work, but it's okay to have joy. Are we leaving enough room for joy? Knowing that work sometimes is just hard. And some days it's like, man, I can't get through this. I look at my job that way first, and then taking it from from a micro to a macro, I would say that trying to have daily positive interactions with anybody that we come in contact with, coaches, admin users, and students. I'm not going to define too hard on what a positive interaction is. We get people who are quite frustrated, who are calling with all kinds of this is and that's, or their due date, they got to go back to court, and the judge is really bearing down on them and How can they have an association or any kind of touch point with us that is positive? And that's be the next way that I would try to define what is the meaning of my job is to try and at a very basic, generic level to create positive experiences for people. Thank you. What passage do you have for us? One of them is from my dad. Insincerity wears a thin robe. The more trendy way to say it is, be your authentic self, blah, blah, blah. I like saying it and thinking about it that way, that people can see through you when you're insincere. And I have found that even in difficult situations, that that can kind of bring people together because when they can sense there's a level of sincerity, communication gets better, respect gets better, results get better, really easy to become cynical and, and unsincere. The other comes from the Outward Mindset book from the Arbinger Institute. And it's just a simple question. The question they have there is, what is the cost of collusion to you personally and to your organization? I feel like they brought up the term collusion far before some of our national media, you know, hear a lot about collusion. It's a legal term to collude. And collusion is defined by arbiters where you have two or more people or two or more entities that are mutually provoking each other so they can both be justified in continuing to mistreat each other. <laughs> uh, yeah, Yeah, I'll, I'll mistreat you so you can blame your bad behavior on me. And then when you mistreat me, I'll be able to blame my bad behavior on you. And so we'll coexist in a very dysfunctional way that <laughs> we'll both give each other what we need the most, which is justification. And so that, in a nutshell, is collusion. And so when that's taking place in any shape, way, or form, in an per- interpersonal relationship, in a business, in a community, and in one of their previous books, The Anatomy of Peace, has two characters, one Jewish, one Muslim, that are in Israel. And they've talked about how those two countries are in collusion. And I don't want to get into politics, yeah. but the bombing comes and goes, and the, it, it goes kind of latent, and, and, and it really erupts at times. But it's been happening on the Gaza Strip for, ever since I was born, those conflicts. That's a form of collusion where two or more people are mutually provoking each other. And so, man, I would just share that in part three here of the podcast. That what is the cost of collusion? Well, let's walk through that. Can we can we put a number to that? Because you know, with business owners and leaders, it's about the bottom line, and it's painful to look at the amount of collusion you have within your organization and how that's killing the productive capacity. I always look at probation departments, and they've got so much to handle, from the courts and judges, from prosecutors, from law changes, to to working with providers, to working with justice of all individuals, and turnover rates, and culture and climate issues. That, for me, is an area that's ripe for eradicating collusion. And specifically, Clifford, between what we do, what ACCI does with probation departments and and community corrections departments is, are we colluding, or are we collaborating? And, And collaborating is the opposite. collusion and so i'm always looking out like how can we increase our collaboration are we provoking in any shape way or form are we provoking more of what we say we don't want are we truly inviting the results that we're after that takes some introspection to have some of those honest conversations
1: what haven't we talked about or what haven't i asked that you think is important before we go
0: i don't know what the future of what the future of corrections is what does the future of corrections look like I do ask probation officers when I'm in a group with them, be it virtual or in person. That's one of my icebreakers. You know, how many pieces of software do you use on a regular basis to get your job done? And it's a lot. And I'll say, so let me ask you this. How many monitors do you guys have? Anybody have three? Hands go up. Anybody have four? A couple of hands go up. Anybody have more than four? I mean, are you guys IT professionals? Data analysts? You know me, I'm having fun with it. Just look at the role of software and everything, but look at probation for officers 20 years ago compared to today in terms of just technology. And I'm part of that problem, right? There's a lot of technology here, but again, we got to connect with humans. I'm a little bit nervous about how much technology is being introduced. And is that getting officers building better relationships where they can increase their intervention capacity or not? I think that's a big question as states and counties and municipalities struggle with caseload ratios and the path forward. Technology is going to ever continue to play a role, but what's the expectation for these probation officers to get out of the screen and and be with people, be with their people on their caseload to the extent possible? So that's one question we could have asked is what is the future of corrections looks like?
1: You gave us a pretty cogent summary from your point of view, which I expect nothing less. Trevor Lloyd, thank you very much for being on the Stay Free Forever podcast.
0: Absolutely. Cliff, thanks for the good work you do. It's been an absolute pleasure of mine to see your journey and the points in your journey that you've shared are a personal thrill for me. It's very thrilling. And so I thank you for that and your willingness to wake up and have positive impact on people that you're blessed to work with. So just appreciate the good work you're doing. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Trevor. That's really nice to hear. Absolutely. I'll probably talk to you in about 20 minutes with a problem. (laughs) I'm sure They'll, they'll always be there. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to StayFreeForever.com or email Clifford at StayFreeForever.com. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Clifford Fuel again. To let you know that by going to StayFreeForever.com, you can check out all 17 adult courses, eight juvenile, and dozen prevention intervention courses for kids, such as vaping awareness, bullying, social media awareness, and more. Each of these courses is really all about each student's favorite subject, themselves. It is an opportunity to really think about how we think and to change risky thinking and behavior into more successful and rewarding outcomes. Online or mailed workbook versions are just $85 for youth and $95 for adults. Youth courses take anywhere from 4 to 10 hours and adult courses 11 to 15 hours. Thanks for listening and go to stayfreeforever.com to learn more.